I'm Jay Ellison, and this is the Transom Podcast. A little different this time, not a show, but one of our In Conversation series. Uh, We're proud to have Jennifer Brandell. She's a journalist, Curious City, Harkin, and she digs into all manner of things with Miranda July, filmmaker, artist, writer, audio lover, as it turns out. For starters, here are a few things that the two of them have in common. They both are self-taught, adept in all kinds of media, builders of custom technologies relating to human interaction, keen on audience participation, they're into designing for women, and averse to traditional expressions of, quote, the news. It's uh, refreshing for us and for you. We hope to step outside the cozy but sometimes claustrophobic frame of reference we're used to in public broadcasting and listen to two people riff on the larger world that we inhabit while keeping us in mind all the while. Public broadcasting is always in need of inspiration. So listen and find some. To disabuse anyone who's reading or listening to this, wherever it's posted, who might wonder what you, Miranda July, have in common with radio, here's just a short list of things that you have in common with public radio or public radio people and stations. You've made radio, of course. You've made videos and film. You've published a newsletter. You've created an app. You perform live shows. And you also, I just recently discovered, have your own branded bags for the superfans, which it's not a tote bag to bring to the farmer's market, but it's still, you have your line of bags, which is amazing. And less about products, but also in common with your work in public radio, you and public media both have been adapting and evolving your work with technology. You work between nonfiction and fiction storytelling. You both have a very distinct sensibility, so much so that I guess The Onion has found it enough to write satirical articles about it. And you both create deep intimacy and empathy with your audiences and your work. And you serve the public in interesting and surprising ways. So hopefully now the overlap is clear. There is a lot in common. And I think there's a lot that those of us in public media can learn from someone like you. Of course, no pressure on teaching us anything right now, but... (laughs) that's my goal I only just understood the tote bag thing I was like wait what why are we and then I was like oh right because public radio gives out tote bags yes totally but your tote bag is is really hot they could really benefit from having more specific tote bag like the beautiful leather bag that you have helped create (laughs) right right but yeah that was funny (laughs) Awesome. Um, Well, I'd love to just kind of start off with your body of radio work and audio work that you've done, and then we can veer off in other directions. But from what I could find, you've, you know, created albums and EPs of radio play kind of hybrids. You've done a collection of short stories that aired on WNYC's now defunct but excellent show, The Next Big Thing. You were on an episode of Starly Kind's Mystery Show recently and a fake commercial for Lena Dunham's new podcast. Mm -hmm. Before I go on, is there anything else like radio related that I missed here kind of from your body of work? All I would say is that in that radio play-ish era, which was really my beginnings, like in my early 20s, I actually, one of my radio plays was a radio show (laughs) where I was like a radio host and I was also all the call-in callers um yeah it was WSNO Radio Snow broadcasting from the coldness of your heart um (laughs) uh, I can almost like when I did that I was like oh my god am I gonna remember the whole piece but no actually 
Wow. Well, how did you decide on radio plays as one of your earliest forms of expression? What drew you to that as a medium? Well, really, I wanted to be making movies. But for some reason, it never occurred to me to just like get as close to Hollywood or a professional filmmaker as possible. Instead, I would do things like do what I called a live movie, which was aka a play <laughs> or a performance. <laughs> but in my head, I really was thinking of it as like, well, I don't have the equipment, but I'll do everything I can do now, you know, and mm -hmm. I'll write the whole script and I'll play all the parts and it can be, you know, I was sort of a little punk, a little avant-garde. So, you know, it wasn't narrative, but a lot of them were like feature length and I was very conscious of that. And then at the same time, I was, um, or actually before that, so stepping back in time, before I did those live movies, I kind of worked my way into that by doing shorter movies. And then I recorded those because I was in the kind of riot girl punk music scene in the Northwest um, without actually being like a good singer or musician or anything. I was sort of just in that scene because everyone I knew was. And so each thing I did, I kind of tried to figure out how to frame it within that context for a while, for a little while before I discovered like, you know, the art world, the film world, the literary world, everything had to be kind of in the music world, even if it wasn't music. So, um, mm. and everyone around me thought that way too. So when I did a performance in Olympia, these two different labels, Kill Rockstars and K Records, the respective gentlemen who run those approached me about doing an album, like a performance album. And, you know, they each had a relationship to spoken word and recorded performance and and I said yes and I worked with both of them and but because I was still in this like movie you know I'm going to be a filmmaker kind of mindset I guess radio plays were like you know I had to think of a way to sort of formalize it and I kept I don't even know how much I use the phrase radio plays. I think sometimes I did when I was talking to like older people who I thought <laughs> that would like warm their hearts or something. Um, <laughs> and it, it is, a, it does help you. It's a little more old timey than I actually was, but I think it helps explain to people like it's not my band. Mm, okay, that, yeah. was a, that was a real starter answer and my brain is warming up now. <laughs> no problem. Well, it, it sounds like radio and radio plays weren't the intended medium. It was kind of an, uh, a result of a few different things colliding in which that became a really good shorthand to just call what they were. But you're not like, I want to be a radio playmaker. Yeah, but I will say I fell in love with audio at that point. Mm. That was the result of that. And it, you know, it only continues like that will never end and I really was in deep there because it wasn't digital yet at the beginning mm -hmm. you know like we were recording onto tape and it was pretty complicated and like many takes and it, I think it was my first experience with rigor you know with the kind mm -hmm. of rigor that later would be required to make movies and and being like unafraid of equipment and realizing like, oh, there's all these cool tools that can augment what you're doing. And and that kind of hands-on 
approach. It's so lucky that I, you know, I learned that first with audio um, and then mm. applied it to a, a million other mediums. Um, but it's interesting to think like probably one reason why I didn't even think twice before deciding to make an app, although maybe I should have, was because <laughs> I never thought, no one around me ever thought twice about recording themselves in the DIY punk scene. You know, you would never say like, oh, but I don't know how to do that. You know, that wasn't the atmosphere. You know, that's yeah. not what DIY stands for. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You figure it out. And in terms of listening to, you know, early work of anyone who's done spoken word or radio, they usually sound a lot different in their early days as, you know, opposed to when they've grown into themselves and kind of, quote unquote, like found their voice. What was that process like for you in, in listening to your early recordings and assessing whether or not they sounded good to you? Can you remember what it felt like or what you thought when you first started playing around with audio and then hearing your own self back? Gosh, you know, what this is making me think is like, oh, of course, I started recording myself as a child, as many mm -hmm. of us did. And I always thought it sounded fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think just the pure miracle of that you can do that, like takes a while to wear off. Um, so certainly as a child recording myself, that was just pure magic. And then I think I still, while well, I was becoming more of a perfectionist, you know, and working with other people. Although, you know, I'm remembering that my very first thing I recorded, which is on 10 million hours a mile, my first Kill Rockstars album, mm -hmm. the music for it is this cardboard record that I got at a thrift store. You know how you could like get a record made in the olden days? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's like this real artifact and its oldness inspired inspired me and, and the piece is really about time travel and going back in time and kind of undoing my parents love so they won't <laughs> conceive me um and so that piece is so intimately tied to sound because it it began with the with this old paper record and that was it you know like it added this level of polish to have music at all and I remember I slowed down my voice you know I was able to do like effects for going back in time and so in a sense it was the medium that allowed the magic trick of time travel to happen you know and I mm. think mm -hmm. it's like I was young enough that it was almost like the realization of every childhood game you've played like that you know where you're yeah where there would be special effects that you're making with your mouth and you're you know you have this whole story going like that's a lot what the very earliest pieces were not to infantilize myself but i think it was satisfying in that way like and there and now it's recorded and it's not just a game it's mm. something that can be shared and it's my like inner most intimate truth mm. and yeah it's suddenly real beyond imagination and yeah there's a physical form to it right yeah. and i wonder a lot about kind of the line where 
you in quotes ends and and audience begins. And I think a lot about, you know, the majority of public radio is nonfiction stories about other people. But despite that, public radio has a lot of personalities, people who don't just deliver information about others, but also have a certain kind of signature style that they exert in the nonfiction storytelling process. And a lot of people struggle with where to draw the line between making work that's a direct personal expression versus work that's just delivering someone else's story and they're trying to get out of the way of it as much as they can. Do you think about that kind of balance to strike in your own work between this kind of pure self-expression and being a steward of someone else's story, even if it's you know fictional or real? Well, I think there's a pretty clear line with my work. There's the fiction which is movies or books um, or performances. And then there's work like Learning to Love You More, which was a website that invited, um, that gave assignments to the public and then posted the results. And And those assignments were in all different mediums, including field recordings. I remember one mm. assignment revolved around that. And, uh, you know, something like that, yeah, you're trying to figure out how to elicit a response, a very specific response, and then get out of the way in the most graceful way, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as like a voice, I mean, even like the thing that makes that piece, Learning to Love You More, my art piece, me and my collaborator on that, Harold Fletcher, is our voice, you know, it's our idea and our frame so yeah I guess in that case we're the public radio host and we're it's like uh we're pointing at what we think is interesting and mm -hmm. we're like using the power of our finger um <laughs> but ultimately the thing you're looking at is not our finger it's the thing we're pointing at so yeah I mean I guess you know there's all sorts of shades of that then you know I have whole performances that I do that involve the audience all the way through. Yeah. Do you find it in any way easier or less pressure when you're kind of the starter of the thing and then the magic happens with the participation versus you have to carry it through from, you know, A to Z entirely? It's actually more, it's less stressful if it's all on me mm. because I know what I can do and it's just a matter of trying and trying again and fixing and troubleshooting and you know whereas with other people they're such wild cards and that's what's great about them you know that's why you know I especially work with a lot of non-artists and specifically because because I don't know what's going to come out because I'm not focused on like talent as much as like just that everyone's interesting and that the present moment is interesting and let's try and inhabit that right now yeah and that's like I a real high wire act especially if you're doing that in front of an audience I just finished a performance called new society that you know I'm so happy to be done with it and that no one <laughs> sabotaged it um and partly why I could only do it a finite amount is because in the end if people knew it knew what was happening they would not in a mean-spirited way but they'd anticipate what was gonna happen and they'd offer their own take on it <laughs> rather yeah. than being this kind of very open and like just thinking on their feet which is what I was asking people to do again and again so 
I love that. Like I'm never more alive and high than when I'm on stage. And then that's like the ultimate of that, of being on stage. Like it's not just me. It's someone I've just met in that moment on, on the stage. But gosh, it feels nice to be sitting in front of my computer um, after that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I went, I saw a new society um, in San Francisco when you were at the Brava Theater and it was incredible. And I have a personal story maybe I'll write to you later about okay. like that night and what happened. I got to participate. It was really outstanding. Oh, amazing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is... This whole idea of engagement and interaction with the public is something that like all media organizations are trying to figure out, you know, how to engage the public. And so much of your work is interactive and requires participation or, you know, just another person to really complete it. So like I've seen, you know, New Society, the Somebody app, uh, even the story you created for your book, The First Bad Man, had this kind of jumping out of the book into real life moment. And of course, learning to love you more with the crowdsourced assignments. And is it like you talked about just kind of feeling alive? Like what draws you to making these two way pieces and being inclusive and not just creating a more rarefied work at an arm's length with an audience? Yeah, one thing I've been thinking is the very first thing I ever made that sort of garnered any attention, like my first real press, was this thing called Joni for Jackie. Um, originally, mm -hmm. it was called Big Miss Movie All, and then I got sued or something. Um, so <laughs> Joni for Jackie was a, I called it a chain letter, and I invited women to send me their short movies, and I would compile them onto VHS tapes, because this was the early-ish 90s. And I would send the tapes back to the women and they would get to see their work and the work of nine other women. And this was like <laughs> a really clunky way pre-YouTube <laughs> for us to have a sense of context as women filmmakers. And when I say us, I actually hadn't even made a movie yet. I was just mm. trying to get up the courage to do that. And so this was how I began. I think by the time the third compilation came out, I was on it. And I was really proud <laughs> that I had something to contribute to my own project. Um, and I only stopped that doing that when I started writing my first feature. And I realized I, I can't do this. And I, I kind of passed it on to some other women. Anyways, all that is just to say that I grew up in a house that also had a business, my parents' publishing company. And so what I grew up seeing was how you make something from beginning to end and then how you get people to come to it um, mm -hmm. and all the work that takes. And so that to me was my sense of like what you do as an adult. Um, <laughs> and it's no surprise that Joni for Jackie, I mean, Joni for Jackie was really like so much like my parents publishing in a way. And uh, I think... I just kept doing that. Like now it's less obvious or it, it seems artier. I got less looking like distribution or something. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but uh, I think that impulse is very, very second nature and comforting to me. Um, and it's not quite the same thing as, as being an artist. It's easier in some ways like your what's required of you is not so much genius as like generosity like thinking about mm. the audience's experience or the participants experience and 
Yeah, it's so it's just a totally different um, muscle. I mean, obviously, there's tons of overlap, and it's not quite so clear cut which project is which. But um, yeah, I would just say that I'm coming to it not from a really exactly from a participatory art point of view. If I'm really honest, I came from it from the point of view as the child of a small business owner. That's really cool, though. And I mean, even if you end up having some of the same outcomes, just the intent behind it of being about distribution and about connection with people, but not just a this is good for business. Well, well it, but it is good for business in its own way, too. Right, um, right. And I should yeah. say, you know, my parents themselves were writers, but what mm -hmm. I saw them mostly doing was meeting people they thought were interesting and saying, do you have a book? And, <laughs> you know, everyone's got a book. Um, and then them being so excited. They're like, guess what? He has a book. Not only does he have a book, he has like 10 unpublished manuscripts. And we're going to publish all of them. Somehow they made this work, by the way, financially. Um, but uh, I forgot to say that part. Like, it's both the nuts and bolts. And it's also that having enthusiasm about someone else's work was something that could run parallel to making your own. Mm -hmm. And that that yeah. would make a good life. Yeah, there's a certain, like, as you said about the generosity, like a stance of service, you know, instead right. of uh, putting something on someone or, you know, making them do something. Yeah. And, and also we should throw mm -hmm. in, lest I sound like um, a saint or something, a sense of greed, mm -hmm. you know, a sense of like eureka. I just found something <laughs> so amazing that the world doesn't know about yet. And I'm going to get to be the one to introduce them, you know, mm -hmm. to the world, like. And there's kinder ways to say it than greed, but you know, <laughs> there's always room for narcissism. Oh, totally. But it feels it feels good to give a gift as the giver mm -hmm. in its own way. And what piece or project do you feel like you've spent the most energy taking the audience's experience into account and really designing it with them in mind? Oh God. I mean, I feel like that process has just gotten more and more refined. Like I can think about how with Learning to Love You More, Harold and I would write these really detailed instructions and then we would start to get the first results that those instructions created and we'd see like, oh my God, what, you know, <laughs> what are, it's always like a bad game of telephone. And so we would keep adjusting and keep adjusting our instructions until they elicited the response that we were looking for. And when I think about it, that's so similar to like what you do when you make an app, you know, you're mm -hmm. not there holding the person's hand. All they have is these instructions. And especially if it's an app that's demanding a lot of the user. Um, yeah. So if you're asking a lot, you have to give just exactly the right kind of support that makes it feel easy to do that thing. Um, mm -hmm. Easy and natural and like you were already about to do it. And and that's also what you do when you're directing. You know, you're trying to find, like, what is the fewest number of words you could say so that the actor is like, you know, if you're directing well, the actor should interrupt you and go, oh, I, I got it, you know, because you've mm -hmm. already started a line of feeling in them and they are going to go finish your sentence on the screen. Mm. 
Wow. Yeah. In, in terms of the learning to love you more, a friend of mine, uh, Betsy O'Donovan from AIR, calls it the most punk public media project ever. And I mean, there's just so many incredible things. I was scrolling through some of the entries last night and ran across assignment number 68 called Feel the News. And I wanted to just talk about that a little bit because it really points to what I think a lot of your work does that news and information is missing, which is really to go macro and also go micro, like go to these giant overview kind of aerial shot, what does it all mean kind of contextual moments into the really tiny interior thoughts that people have that are also magic in their own way. So I'll just read the assignment out loud. We'll post it on the website. But uh, just to refresh your memory, in case you weren't looking at assignment 68 last night like I was. uh, So it says, go to democracynow.org and stream a video there and watch the current show. When the segment is over, choose someone from the news who made an impression on you. Imagine that you are them and act out a moment of their day today. Choose an ordinary moment, one without dialogue, when they are alone. Maybe the moment after they hang up the phone or before they go to sleep. It doesn't matter what they are doing, only that you try to feel what it feels like to be them today, given what you know about their life right now. Take a picture of this moment with the help of a self-timer or a friend. Don't bother dressing up like them. Don't worry if you aren't the same race or gender as them. And don't choose going to the bathroom. Everyone else will do that. Send the caption for the photo in an email, and it should include the relevant news. I just think this is brilliant. And then some of the documentation and the people who participated here, just a a couple examples that we'll link to. Laura Weldon from Litchfield, Ohio, said Monday, January 5th, 2009, President Raul Castro, who declared life is an eternal struggle at today's Cuban anniversary celebration, clips his overgrown toenails. And there's this picture of her overgrown toenails, but as him. And then one other from Los Angeles, Wednesday, January 9th from Daniel Post, I believe, after lending his support to candidate John Edwards on stage in New Hampshire, Desperate Housewife stars James Denton reads the label of his new facial cleanser. I feel like what you're hitting here with this assignment is so much of what news is missing, which is this acknowledgement of humanity and vulnerability in the people who are shaping society. I just wanted to talk a little bit. This is, I guess, the conversation, although I do have questions about it, but What do you think of when you hear this kind of news assignment? I wish all news, personally, was like this. Yeah, I did write that one. Some of them Harold wrote and some of them I wrote. Um, So I'm like, okay, luckily I wrote that one. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I think I'm someone who always has trouble with the news. Like, I want to know. I'm obviously, like, a curious person. But I learn through intimacy and through um, identifying and... I think that in a way, well, whatever, period. And um, <laughs> and so in, in a really clunky, sort of almost overly simplistic way, it was like, okay, well, what if you just, you know, made an assignment out of that, made it your assignment to identify with these people who are very hard to identify with, you know, what if you became them and really embodied them and they are actually people with feelings who do all the mundane things that you do most of the things um and (laughs) so it shouldn't be that hard you know you could do it right now and so that's yeah that's what the assignment asks you to do and like harold and i often talked about like make it dumber you know when in doubt like instead of trying to have a sophisticated way into that problem of 
feeling alienated from the news, like what's the dumbest way you could try mm. and connect? Because, you know, a lot of problems are kind of limbic, like they are kind of dumb. You know, it's like, mm. you can't get in there intellectually necessarily. And, and I mean, that's most obvious when you actually can empathize, you know, like as a mother, see some horrific thing that's happening to another mother in the news and then you identify you know all too much and it's incredibly painful and and overwhelming in its own way so you know maybe you can use like a little bit of that ability that you do have to identify with unappealing people with people you're angry at with you know boring people with you know to move away from yourself but keep that reality yeah and not to put you on the spot with examples here, but are there shows or ways you consume news that you feel like are doing a pretty good job of allowing you to relate to others? Anything that you gravitate toward? Well, me and Harold were both on a big democracy now kick right then. Um, <laughs> so I think we started out like just with that. That was actually the starting point was like, how is there something we can do with democracy now? And, you know, I realize I switch around a lot. Like I'll think this is it. And then I'll not, I'll decide that's not so great. Um, let's see. Well, I mean, honestly, like the most minimal thing I do is read my compendium of news sent by the New York Times, which I have to say is so bad. It's like <laughs> so much worse than you would think it would be. Um, How so? Well, you miss, it's really just like four things. I'm not sure what their algorithm is, but it's like, <laughs> I think I did it because I thought like, okay, well, this is going to at least keep me up to date on the basics. But like, you know, just once you trade out some sports or popular culture thing for some like major world news and you've like, you're in the dark. And I think they do try and have the right mix of kinds of things, regardless of what the news is, you know, it's just too mm -hmm. short, I guess, is the problem is some of the curatorial issue there. Uh, I like... This is a totally different kind of thing, but Lena Dunham's Lenny letter. Oh, yeah. I wasn't sure what she was going to do with that. And I was, you know, my pants were pretty much blown off. Like, oh, you're just going to try and change the world and interview, you know, I mean, that the first interview was with Sandra Bland's best friend, like yeah. just a very startling news source that no one was going to anticipate. And that I think so many women were very obsessed with the, I mean, people, but, you know, I read every single thing I could find on Sandra Bland. Um, and mm -hmm. it was one of the wormholes I fell down. And I know I wasn't the only one. So hearing from her best friend was exactly what, uh, what we wanted was like a context that was she created, you know. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, whatever, she went on from there to like Hillary Clinton and a lot of less famous people doing really powerful things and then a sprinkling of like frivolity which i think is really savvy yeah. i like that also because there was a response to you know like someone who i think received a lot of criticism like sort of unfair criticism and you think like oh what is she gonna do next and that her you know while a normal person might go cry for like five years um <laughs> or just get it together to do the next season of her show or whatever she's like well that didn't feel good 
the world must be pretty screwed up. I mean, she knew that. Mm. I think I'll change it so that I don't feel so alone and shitty. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's just like, okay, that person is like, their DNA is different from mine. <laughs> I'm like still <laughs> crying for her as her friend. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I man. haven't made it past that phase. <laughs> Well, yeah, I feel self-conscious at times because I work, I guess, in the news industry at large, but I'm not a news junkie. Like, I find it very, very difficult to connect with the news for all the reasons that you outlined is that people don't feel human. It's not presented in a context that feels accessible to me. And everyone seems so professional and authoritative. And how do they even know what they know? It just is right. really... That's such a good point. Yeah, the and... tools are so far, so taken out of your hands that you just you let go you're like okay someone else is driving here yeah yeah but and there's this feeling about the work that you do and I've consumed a lot of it not everything but from all the work I've consumed there's this kind of overarching powerful feeling of vulnerability in a lot of your work which is profoundly relatable you seem to put yourself out there in ways that feel extremely risky and a lot of your work even requires vulnerability from the participants and I, I wanted to know how have you become so comfortable with being vulnerable yourself, is it, is it a struggle for you or is there a certain kind of delight or power that you can derive from it? Yeah, I think um, not consciously, but I was interested to see early on, like just how vulnerable can I be? Um, mm. And not in safe places, by the way. I mean, this would be like on stage at a hardcore show that I was somehow like booked in between to hardcore <laughs> band, you know, like, but that seemed like the power that I had, you know, like I wasn't going to out tough anyone another way, mm. but that would be a way to show like, I could eat you for breakfast. I'm so unafraid. <laughs> this is how fearless I am. I'm going to be utterly vulnerable up here. And it wasn't a um, soft, girly tweet thing no, I was doing yeah. at that time it was like and it had actually a lot of anger behind it you know like any person in their 20s you know I had all sorts of things I was rebelling against and and that was yeah that was the way I could do it and then I think over time I realized like oh wow I really don't this isn't an act like this in fact makes me feel safe because it's my own like I'm making the ground I'm making the context I'm the rules sort of so the opposite of that is like, I'm not making the real, you know, a situation mm. like the news <laughs> um, <laughs> or whatever, some situation that I'm actually in where I'm not making the rules. And then, you know, it all kind of falls to pieces. Like I'm just trying to imitate the person next to me or, you know, I've lost, yeah. you know, that's where I'm at my weakest. Well, it feels like there is this ultimate strength in consciously making yourself vulnerable like that is so I don't know I was going to make a big overarching statement I don't know if it's true but that people a lot of people see vulnerability as a weakness and I think it is like the ultimate strength to be comfortable with being vulnerable and I didn't know if you if you have like conscious practices or, or exercises I guess that keep you limber or strong in the vulnerability department to keep going out there and opening yourself up to great unknown no I mean I only really notice when I'm not doing it and then I'm kind of put off by myself, you know? Mm. And for me, that can be as simple as like 
someone's asking for me to do something instead of doing something new and scary I just am like I don't have a lot of time I'm just gonna give them something that's a lot like something else I've already done um Mm -hmm. and that always feels so terrible to me I know a lot of people do that I mean that's like a fine and respected thing in art but I feel like yeah there was no risk there um Mm. and so I'm not that interested in what I made and then it's like well why even bother you know and that only happens every once in a while but anyways that's like a red flag goes up if I'm repeating myself and uh you know other than that I think it's just you know like I have ideas and often the ideas that don't work out are not mysterious enough to me I'm excited about them because I know everything about them and at first it takes you a while to realize that like oh wait (laughs) this project is over before it even began because I know everything, you know, about this topic. Um, I can't write a whole book that has any life in it. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, so if just catching yourself when you're not marching into the unknown uh, and, and, you know, that's not like a perfect science. Like I march into the known frequently and I'm like, oh, Everything is very brightly lit here and clear, <laughs> and I am not needed. And then I have to be embarrassed and be like, oh, I'm not doing that project anymore mm. and start over. Yeah, this is really interesting. I mean, and, and just to make a clunky public radio analogy is that there are so many experiments that are tried or shows that kind of develop a, a loving audience, even if it's not big enough And I think there's a big fear of the backlash from the audience when you decide, I'm not going to do that thing you've known me for. I'm going to change and I'm going to try something new. Have you dealt with and and how have you dealt with? Well, first of all, when public radio, if they, you know, cancel a show or sunset something, it usually makes the people who love that thing not just sad, but really enraged a lot of times. And have you dealt with that kind of reaction from fans of when you've kind of pivoted and done something new because they wanted more of the earlier you? And if so, how have you dealt with that kind of disappointment? Yeah, I mean, probably the biggest time that happened was when I made uh, my first movie, Me and You and Everyone We Know. It was sweeter than a lot of other things I'd made. Yeah. And I think I consciously, like I wanted these more mysterious or darker things in it, but I felt really intrigued by like how to do that in this in this new medium, which is a feature film that I want to be in theaters. And that didn't seem like um, I wasn't compromising. It was still very authentically me. But for the next few years of my life, every time someone came up to me and said, oh, I loved me and you and whatever it's called um, (laughs) so much, I can't wait to see the next thing you do. And I would smile and think, you're going to hate everything I make <laughs> from here on out. <laughs> um, once in a blue moon, I'd think, oh, yeah, you might you might actually like my book of short stories or whatever, my next movie. Or, but, you know, that was like slightly painful. But because I and the people, the much smaller audience that had followed my work before that movie, we knew that... <laughs> Like, it wasn't a surprise to me what came after or to my friends or the people who'd listened to, like, the, the Rockstars <laughs> albums or whatever. Yeah. But there was a little bit of a... It was, like, my first brush with, like, oh, okay, that will never happen again, probably. And 
let go, like let go, Miranda, because that's not like what you're here on earth to do is mm-hmm. like court that, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't. Well, in terms of your own metrics for success, I mean, the news industry is really obsessed with metrics right now because they can measure so much more than they ever could have before. And I wanted to know, in terms of the projects you do in various media, in terms of thinking about the business of that particular project, do you set metrics and goals and kind of track that kind of stuff? And if so, what is that like? Well, I mean, I think one thing I like about working in the different mediums is it's wildly different in each medium. And for example, you know, I had my two big things come out this year. One was a novel and one was a performance, New Society. And almost nobody saw New Society because it's a performance. And it's not just a performance. It's one that I had to do in smallish spaces. So, you know, smaller spaces than I could actually fill. And I couldn't do it, you know, an infinite amount of times. And so built in was a very limited audience. And I, when it was done, I walked around for a few days, very lost, just kind of repeating to people, like, I feel like I just did a Tibetan sand painting. Like, (laughs) what? Like, so really, you spend three years working, making something, and then it's, that's it. And there's no real record, you know, that's like consumable. And wow, I guess that seems hardcore. Why would anyone do that? (laughs) Um, But I have, of course, I have been doing that from the get go. It's just that part of me had gotten more invested, I guess, since the last time I did a performance in the artifact and in like the skill of the audience. But now it's been a couple months later and I I feel like, oh, that is good because what also comes with that is I didn't promote the hell out of that. In fact, I kept it a secret Mm -hmm. and I had, it wasn't a commercial work. So I conceived of it differently. I built it different. Like it, it just occupied a space that, that is a little different when there is a whole marketing department behind Mm -hmm. something, you know, like, and when it has to make money, you know, I realized like, I'm very lucky, actually, that I got to do that. And the beautiful thing is anyone can be that lucky, like, Mm. to make work that's like free to make, and doesn't need to make money, like that's where we all start, right? Yeah. And so you can keep that thing, um, if you want. Then there's a project that requires the biggest possible audience simply to work, like somebody required like I needed a lot of people right off the bat just for the mechanism of the app to work. And that it was so weird to me that I I had to like be like there has to be the biggest press possible. And it's not because I'm an egoist. <laughs> like, please yeah. understand. I just need people to join it so there will be people to deliver messages to other people and to write messages and you know I was lucky in that case it's the only time I'll ever have like a banner ad on the front page of the (laughs) New York Times um yeah and that was sort of interesting I respected the value of you know we love to gripe about press and advertising and stuff and I suddenly was like oh you know, now I'm thinking about like, how can you have something at that scale, but with a diverse audience? Mm-hmm. Um, because I didn't really have that for the app. So, well, that's a problem public media faces as well. <laughs> right, right. 
Well, in in the few minutes we have left here, I wanted to bring into kind of like a lightning round of questions from some other public media folks who were excited about the opportunity to ask you a question via me. So I wanted to just throw a few out there for you. Laura Starczewski is a reporter at the Center for Investigative Reporting, and she'd like to know when you procrastinate, what do you do to procrastinate? Oh, God. Well... Sometimes I Google my friends, (laughs) starting with my most famous friends, but actually going to happily going to people who where I'm just checking and being like, yep, same four things up as last time. (laughs) Um, And it's just like reassuring. I just like typing in their names. And uh, I just took Twitter off my phone. Um, Mm. Very happy about that. Looking back, I'm like, oh, that was a period of profound loneliness. and now that is over. Nothing too sad. Just my husband was shooting a movie. And so I kind of abused Twitter on my phone. Another question from Logan Jaffe is a multimedia reporter for WBEZ's Curious City. And she wants to know, when you think about the role of the public in your relationship to it, if you had to pick a preposition, what would you choose? You make work for the public, with the public, of the public, at the public. Well, I'd have to say like with and for. Nice. Right? Okay, cool. Um, Amira Glickman is a freelancer, and she's also the lady I made the ridiculous um, ad I sent you about pubic hair. And she wanted to know how you experience guidance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Guidance is something I only discovered when I entered my 30s because I, you know, I'm self-taught. I didn't go to school for any of the things. And not just self-taught, but like really poo-pooed the whole idea of being taught you know it seemed like uncool to me so I completely missed the boat on guidance and feedback and even like the fundamentals of the editorial process and then it just seemed like free money once I got it (laughs) I was like oh you can be helped and that's allowed like you don't just have to suffer as much as possible and experience the very finite limitations of your own brain you can actually get a little bit of help and go way further and yeah since then i mean i feel like now so often i'm you know just learning you know Mm -hmm. i mean so so much of what makes me feel good and like i'm doing good work is that i'm just learning from other people that i have the right people around me that i'm learning from or that i'm reading the right interviews or you know um, yeah But that's been a real shift. I mean, I would have thought that person was uncool in my 20s. (laughs) Yeah. What about even guidance in a metaphysical kind of way? If you do that as well. Yeah. Or just kind of a guidance from from other signals. Well, I meditate and do a kind of mini meditative type thing throughout Mm -hmm. the day. That's really just like a few seconds of checking in with myself you know I call friends mm-hmm. all the time and especially like my women friends who are also artists and like literally ask for help advice um I mean those okay. work but okay. <laughs> yeah right. if there's I don't know that you you know read tea leaves or whatnot but oh right yeah <laughs> I used to do the I Ching more but like I actually cannot find my book so oh now I now I'm like I have the pennies <laughs> and I'll sort of toss them and be like, okay, I really need the book. Yeah. Uh, okay, I had one tiny quick last question then. Okay. 
the question that everyone in public media asks and is maybe the most important question, which is, what did you have for breakfast? <laughs> I had French toast that my husband made, and he's, as it turns out, has never made French toast before. <laughs> and so, oh my goodness, it was, um, yeah, it was completely wrong, but very endearing. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, thank you so, so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was great. Oh, good. All right. Oh, excellent. Okay. Bye. Bye. That was Jennifer Brandell and Miranda July as part of Transom's In Conversation series. Uh, I urge you to head over to transom.org to see how Jen so thoughtfully laid all this out. It's nine key takeaways that Miranda July can teach or remind us about as public radio makers, public media makers. Uh, Jen also poses a bunch of smart questions for us to think about throughout her post. And not to be missed are the beautiful, playful, animated illustrations from artist Arthur Jones. He did illustrations specifically for this feature, all at transom.org. Also, Jen and Miranda are hanging around. They'll be on the discussion boards if you have questions or comments. Okay, Samantha Brown is Transom's managing editor, largely responsible for uh, this In Conversation series. Sydney Lewis is our senior editor. Vicki Merrick is Transom's senior producer. Our tools guru is Jeff Town. Rob Rosenthal teaches our workshops. Colin Kelly is our web developer. Transom is funded by the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you very much to them. And by people like you who like Transom, thank you. It's our 15th anniversary. If you go there right now, you can click on the donate button and help us out. It would be a big deal and we'd be grateful. I'm Jay Allison, founder and executive editor of Transom.org. Drop over anytime. <laughs>